Welcome to the podcast Art and Extractivism, a project of hyenas. I'm Kate, and I'm one half of hyenas. We're a duo working between sonics and performance. Our musical work is based in field recordings and interviews. In our first episode, we begin with part one of our pilot of our bi-weekly reading group. The reading group meets every two weeks and is primarily geared towards freelance artists and non-academics who are interested in engaging with critical theory in their work or thinking about ideas discussed within critical theory circles, but don't generally have access to reading circles, books, or lectures, or the dedicated time or funding to do so. However, the reading group is open to everyone, and we would love to include a multitude of voices to complicate the real-world application of themes that are addressed throughout our reading. Here we are discussing a section of the book Freedom, Justice, and Decolonization by Lewis R. Gordon. To take part in our reading group, please visit our website, www.hyenas.com for more information. Welcome to the first, well, let's say a pilot edition of the Art and Extractivism Reading Group. Hi, nice to be here. Um, let's start by talking, saying who we are. Would, would you like to go first? Sure. My name is Kate. Uh, my preferred pronouns are she, um, they, or he. Great. Um, um, my name is Adrian, and my preferred pronouns are she. Um, 6.05 on this 5th of August, 2021. We're going to go for, I think, about an hour and a half. We'll see how the time works. Um, and um, we are going to do a reading from the writer Lewis Gordon. Um, and we'll talk a bit about, about that in a second. Um, but that's the goal for today. But Kate, was there anything else you'd like to do before we start the reading? I'd like to just briefly um, try for each member of the group to define extractivism um, as they understand it. And maybe you want to begin? Sure. So I um, I think of extractivism as um, a non-reciprocal um, relationship of taking um, um which is exploitative, and um, normally it's understood through um, through thinking about um, extraction of resources, in particular mineral resources. Um, but um, it really can be any kind of relationship. It can also be that a, that a person is extracted from, um, that a culture is extracted from, as well. Um, if there isn't this sort of reciprocity. Um, uh, in the relationship, do you agree with that, Kate? I do. I think it's really important to bring about the um, the concept of reciprocity, and that extractivism implies a kind of um, non reciprocal relationship. Um, my question, a bit, would be um, around at what point does the sort of non what is defined as non-reciprocity. So especially when we talk about payment for labor or, um, yeah, what kind of point we assess that something becomes exploitative, because I think this is, can also be very subjective. Um, but we, um, I think this, be, because it's so complicated like that and complex, that's important to think about when we think about extractive processes, that they're not always so easily defined. Yeah, I agree. Um, anything else? And I would bring in just, uh, yeah, I would just add to what you said um, that I think um, extractive processes can happen in any kind of essentially non-hierarchical relationship, which is broadly any relationship. And uh, again, it comes in degrees and on spectrum. But if we think about how these um non-hierarchical relationships happen and how we collaborate with each other across them. Um, what what does that mean inside of artistic fields and how we employ each other as artists, how we employ within the art field, how we employ quote-unquote non-artists and how we also mine ourselves, so-called, meta metaphorically speaking, mine ourselves for the exotic. Yeah, indeed. I think that we'll get to that when we look at some of this um deeper into certain readings around art and extractivism um, where we might start to think about 
um, when someone is a prosumer, producer, consumer, um, how one is one's own, one's own boss. And it's actually possible in a, in a really bizarre way to extract from oneself um, where the non-reciprocity becomes a kind of a spiral, um, which ends in um, exhaustion, um, uh, which we might uh, also look into if we look at the book um, Burnout Society. So, shall we begin? Sure. So, I think that you had um, brought in something for today for our pilot. And so, if you want to just let yeah. us know where to go to. The book is called Lewis R. Gordon, um, Free Justice of Floss Gordon and um, Decolonial Philosopher Medina uh, we just went spontaneously. We didn't want to overthink about which text to begin with, so we just chose one which was on our minds. So that's one reason why. Um, you can look at this book and go, what's it have to do with um, extraction? Um, Gordon doesn't use the word extraction or extractivism at all. Um, um, I would just say that I think that um, that Gordon is um, is very much dealing with questions of of the political, how it's possible to be political. Um, and um, the role that um, colonial um, formations and neo-colonial formations um, play in um, fields of knowledge, um, and how um, how our concepts are structured, how certain um, forms of knowledge are validated or invalidated, how certain speakers are validated or invalidated, the hierarchical relationships as well. Bless you. Um, that um, that uh, arrive um, due to the like that due to the the the, the, the fact that the heart of what um, Gordon calls Euro modernity is um, the uh, colonization of um, the um, different of um, Africa, the creation of our countries within the continent of Afri- Africa. Um, um, how um you know that um certain people who never understood themselves as black suddenly found themselves in that identity um and then also of the um also the colonization of the new world um north and south america um and so that the, 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 these processes are not just like something that we can look at uh with our um, with our reason, but that actually our our reason, um, we, when we use our reason, we're already looking through a colonial lens. And so um, he, that's why I find him a very interesting thinker. And, and he's a phenomenologist, or existentialist, actually. Existentialism and phenomenology are quite close. And um, I think that that allows him to do certain kinds of radical turns um, to go back to the phenomena themselves, back to the phenomena of consciousness themselves um, as a way of um, of looking at um, different kinds of questions. So trying not to assume too much um, to, uh, before we start to speak, uh, which I find attractive because I think that, that by being both aware of um, race and colon- colonialism and also trying to be um, quite radical in his thinking, he allows us to start to look at these questions with a different thank you let's um let's stop and uh as we go through and uh with each paragraph and just talk see if there's anything we want to address in the paragraph okay so uh it begins uh so we're on page 100 and uh well my pdf is 127 yeah 127 uh lewis there are several concepts and ideas in your works that have had a great influence on me changing my optics methodological approaches, even the language of my own writing. Among them, disciplinary decadence, existentia africana, your take on bad faith departing from Sartre, and through your dialogue with Fanon, your understanding of problem people, etc. But perhaps the most important of your concepts is shifting the geography of reason. Undoubtedly, this is one of the key contemporary processes often blocked or opposed by those who do not want to allow such a shift. In Rolando Vasquez's 
terms, um, it would be a humbling of modernity with its specific narrow locality of knowledge, production, masked as universal, yet excluding the majority of people as potential knowledge producers and as rational beings. So not having read the text um, from Lewis Gordon yet, there's a few things that are introduced that I um, I feel that I need to sort of suspend understanding of um, perhaps to uh, a few pages into this, um, or they may not, um, I'm not sure that they're important to understand for understanding this section, but I would say that the, the sentence I, I definitely missed was, among them disciplinary decadence, I'm not sure what that is, existentia africana, not sure what that is, um, and his, and his take on bad faith, um, yes, or the definition of problem people. Um, although I could guess at those things, I don't know what they are. Yeah, exactly. I think that you're right. I think we should bracket them because they're not really. Um, then yeah, they're not really being addressed here. So let's just bracket those ones for now. Okay. Um, and maybe look at um, shifting the geography. Yes. Of reason. Yeah. Anything occur for you there? I am assuming this means um, where the sort of um, knowledge is situated, knowledge with a capital K is situated. So where reason is situated and how that is, um, I'm assuming, has something to do with sort of north, south or east, west or global or global north, when I say that, um, or Western knowledge, Western philosophy, that kind of thing. But I think he's about to explain it. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's, that, that's right. And so, so they don't mention, mention the geography just yet, the specific geography, but we got some clues. Um, so a humbling of modernity with a specific narrow locality of knowledge production masked right. as universal. So we're talking about something which is actually very specific, which claims to be universal. So we talk about reason. We don't talk about European right. reason or Anglo-American reason. We talk about reason if there's only one in the entire world and it's a kind of transparent um, medium through which we can examine the world. And they're basically starting to say that um, that this right. is not the case. Um, in feminist theory, we talk about that as being marked. So maleness is never marked, whereas anything non-male is always marked. So, um, right. yeah. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and um, yeah, so it's uh, I like this phrase, excluding the majority of people as potential mm. knowledge producers mm. and as rational mm -hmm. beings. So it's like we're not mm. all invited to the table um, when we're talking about reason and things like that. All right. Do you want to read uh, Lewis's yeah. paragraph then? To understand uh, shifting the geography of reason, we must first consider what geography of reason is. Paths we take often take us to those we don't intend and could never initially imagine. When I had formulated this idea in the 1990s, I was building on Enrique Dussel's concept of the underside of modernity. It struck me that there is a dialectical aspect of living or being located at the underside. If we look at history, those from the underside usually hold the key to the future. Those on the surface imagine themselves to be where humanity is going. When they fall, they often watch their world serving as the outline for another to come, and it is often one with which they do not identify. So it struck me that each empire left its unique traces that were transformed. There were Roman roads and aqueducts. There were Arab trade routes. Across Africa, there were trade routes from Songhai and Mali. And more recently, there were the ocean routes of the Portuguese and Spaniards from which the Danes, Dutch, and, Bridget, and British built their way. They built theirs on the outlines of those in Abye Yala, which they called the Americas. And the United States and former Soviet Union had emerged on the outlines of others. Why then, I asked, couldn't it be the case that shifts from sails to steam engines to oil and gasoline to silicon and information technology not have their own outlines through which creative people from the South could articulate a different future? Part of the arrogance of all empires is that they imagine they could open doors that lead one way. Doors and keys are more than we take them for. 
And they, plus various pathways, offer context through which imagination indeed could build a different and hopefully better kind of tomorrow. One premised, at least, on concrete manifestations of freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, okay. So, um, it, this is obviously not the end of the, his right. answer to the question, but it's it's uh, so, somehow doesn't seem to address the question, but yet uh in any in any specific detail um but in any case let's let's ignore that and um say that what he's describing is that um there's been a historical process through which in the past empires came and went and um um civilizations came and went and um that the when they when they exited the stage, they left behind certain kinds of technologies, um, trade and networks, uh, trade routes, things like that, that, um, that were then built upon by the, the people who kind of, um, rose up next in the next yeah. sort of era. And, um, he argues that, um, that even our contemporary, um, you know, age, um, could also um, provide something which um, which those who are excluded, who uh, tend to come from the South, and the South in those is capitalized, so it's not south. literally mm-hmm. people who live in the South. <laughs> it's it's, an, it's a it's a it's it's people who are yeah it's it's a kind of more of a um, it's a South that can be in the North uh, the Northern Hemisphere as well. It's it's there, there are Souths in the North and vice versa, but. It, it it it's called the South, I think, because traditionally a lot of the the countries and people who belong to, who are excluded from from um, who are excluded and exploited uh, in international systems of knowledge and capitalism and things like that tend to come from uh, Southern Hemisphere countries, mm-hmm. but not necessarily. I think also right. important just to note is that he introduces Dussel's concept of underside and the dialectical relationship between the underside and the surface, so-called surface. So, um, and he says this, um, which reminds me a little of this like classic thing around master's tools and dismantling the master's house. So, which is kind of interesting. I don't know where, if, if that will come into play, but, um, this is, um, like as far as when he talks about an outline, you know, does that mean that kind of also that that underside then sort of takes up the outline and, you know, to what extent can they transform that? Um, But what I was also interested here is part of the arrogance of all empires is that they imagine they could open doors that lead one way. I'm a little curious about what he means by that. I, I, I've read this piece, but I believe he's going to say that, like, or he would say that um, it's about um, the doors open and leave one way. So the European, um, the European colonialists kind of like, um, or the, or the empires kind of thought they could just kind of go over there and do what they want, and that there will always be a kind of active, passive. Um, kind of dynamic between the different peoples and that the, um, the people who, who they um, administered and controlled won't uh, ever um, uh, assume, you know, take, take, take those tools, adapt them, transform them, build on them, mm. go beyond them um, in order to um, define right. an era okay. and uh, in which... In which these, um, in which these, uh, in which the North capital Got M it. no longer okay. dominates. Right. So let's continue on. I would suggest. Um. So yeah. It's in, yeah. Let's keep going. Yeah. Good idea. Okay. So keep reading. Well, maybe we should do paragraph by paragraph because I think that yeah. the questions are short. So. Yeah. All right. So um, I'll do the next paragraph. Um, the unexpected paths are the many discoveries along the way, taking hold of building alternative futures. Um, requires a commitment to having a future at all, where the geography of reason means that only certain groups of people in a specific location called the North have a future, and reason, the structure of the relationship is reason supposedly coming down to the people of the South. 
The implications are many. For example, the presumption is that people from the North offer through reason the ideas that make people of the South appear. Those from the South thus become passive recipients of such light. This, however, is a distortion of history and reality. It erases facts and it cultivates dependency. It also leads, since the people of the North use reason to illuminate their experience, um, to the conclusion that Northern experience is more valuable than Southern. If the point is to bring reason to experience, then everyone must take responsibility for reason and the theory it creates. It is this taking responsibility for reason that leads to the shift. It is done without permission of those who attempt to hoard reason. But here is the additional shift. The hoarded reason is a distorted reason. It is a form of unreasonable reason that imagines itself complete and standing on its own. Those who challenge it do so from an understanding of reason as an ongoing relationship and commitment to certain kinds of practices that are never complete. Even the future is open. They, thus, in shifting the location geography of reason, also shift reason itself from a closed to an open relational commitment. So, um, I think we should define reason. And why it might be important. Yes, sorry. I was just kind of reading over it a second time to let it absorb. There's a couple of things that I highlighted. Um, well, I don't think that reason as a definition is static. Um, I think that's sort of the point in a way is that someone is sort of taking the reins and define and doing the defining of it. Um, and that right. per- that person's is this North with a capital N. So, um, the world could be ordered differently. Reason could be built on different sort of building blocks, but it's built and defined by um, one group and not the other. And so it becomes, as he says, hoarded. It's a hoarded reason is a distorted reason. Um, I think I want to take a step backwards though. And Gark, when you kind of like walk philosophy class, um, and then someone starts talking about reason. Um, what are they talking about? Um, oh, um, I would say a system of, of, of logic. Yeah, yeah, I'd say it's in logic, a way of understanding the world, mm-hmm. of interpreting the world. Um, so it's worth defining reason and I think also mm-hmm. the enlightenment, um, which are kind of like... Um, key moments key key concepts or moments in uh in the history of philosophy of in terms of like of like the 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 mainstream history of philosophy i would you know i'd say and um which i think that he's kind of speaking against or or at least challenging so it's maybe worth contextualizing what what exactly like uh lewis gordon is challenging so um the enlightenment which I think, like you, you see that I think it's also important because he says in the, in the text, um, you know, like um, um, the North offer through reason the ideas that make people right. appear, you know, um, and it's really light. Um, those from the South thus become passive right. recipients of such light. So this idea of the Enlightenment, which was a, a sort of a, a philosophical mo- philosophical movement in seventeen hundreds. Where it was kind of like as though like before there was darkness, and now with certain forms of, thi- of of seeing the world, rationality, scientific understanding, logic, we could interpret the world, make right. it interpretable, and um and they use like the metaphor of right. light, enlightenment, um uh to to describe these this like what are very, a whole bunch of different kinds of knowledge acts or um analytical analytical acts, yes, um. And so it's very much a Europe. It's it's seen as it's seen as universal, even though it was based in Europe, and it's seen as universal, even though it was mainly men defined it and practiced it. Um, and um, so, yeah, there's sort of, and so, and he's saying that like, if if we assume that reason is universal, and um, then um, it actually it's it's 
A, it's not. It came from a specific time and place and a specific kind of um, class and a specific kind of um, uh, gender and, um, and uh, nationality, um, racialized identities. So it's not universal. And by pretending it's universal, we do something, which is we actually impose it on, like, the North and imposes the right. reason on the South. And it makes them, and, like the people of the South can only be said to right. exist and be seen through the concepts that the right. North give and they become passive recipients right. of such light as yeah. it says. Yeah, this reminds me of something that um, um, an African artist said to me, which was just like, I, I'm called a Black artist, I'm called an African artist, but I was given the name Blackness. That's not my term. I'm not a Black artist. It was given that by the contemporary art scene in Europe, basically. So I think this is a way of, you know, there's definitions, there's an emergence. There's the, 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 the figure emerges. I would even say like it's sort of interpolated, has subjectivity, appears. You know, all of these things I think have similarity. They, they appear because mm-hmm. light from mm-hmm. what, you know, the, from this source is shed upon them. Right. Um, right. Right. And then we have this whole kind of like, um, and it's not really then a paragraph yet, so I'm jumping, sort of jumping, maybe saying not in, in, this, in this chapter, but we have this whole kind of like um, spiritual morality, kind of like um, superstitious um, uh uh, formations in like in in European um, understandings and everyday language, like light is seen as good and dark is seen as bad, and then we also then like uh, call certain people light skinned, certain people dark skinned um, in European in the European like uh, everyday um, language. Um, so like you can already see how like. The extent to which even the term enlightenment then also with like then is implicated in like the concepts of whiteness and blackness and how it already puts um people from the south at a kind of in a subordinate position i yeah i agree with you um however i would also say that it kind of contains something that's like also mm, benign in the sense that like I don't, yes, it, it, it implicates goodness and badness, but on the other hand, it also doesn't. And I think that's why it's so sort of insidious because, I mean, visibility, I don't think is ever seen as bad. You know, it's not like, of course, if you can see something, that's a good thing, you know, or that's, that's, you, you without light, you can't see it. So it's more like this is a tool by which, and I think that's where it really becomes distorted is because it's, it's no longer like, oh, this is a good or right thing. This is actually, but that's the only way you can see it, of course. So it becomes like common sense, you know, and that like this set, this idea of common sense. Well, of course we need the flashlight to see the thing. That's not a good or bad thing. That's just a fact, you know? And, and and I think that that's yeah, almost sure. what makes it more dangerous. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I I I um I don't want to go too far from the text, but I can see the way in which this is operating now in our digital spheres and how much digital silencing happens in this, uh, in those in that same process, you know, by which things no longer have the ability to even emerge because there is just such a foothold on what is what is visible and the avenues to visibility and like a kind of mm-hmm. ease at which things are kept from being visible and that people don't that that users don't even understand that that's kind of constantly occurring right right I'm going to continue on, I think. Um, yeah, there's so much more we could talk about this paragraph, but then we're going to get anywhere. Um, yeah, I mean, I just think that, um, yeah, the, uh, 
I think it's, it's good to say that the hoarded reason, so the, the reason that is that, that pretends to be universal but, but is actually very particular, um, is a form of unreasonable reason um, that imagines itself complete and standing on its own. And then, so the challenge, um, the challenge, that the, the, then those who challenge come from a different positionality, which is, which is, is not being universal, of actually being... Um, of in, being in a relationship and so they kind of like so then like reason instead of being like universal becomes relational and that like and and i think he's saying that it's better that like ultimately we get to a better position when we have a kind of a form of, of reason which is seems relational um um we get from we go from closed reason closed universal reason which um distorted to an open relational one, which which is a and he says a commitment, open relational commitment. So there's even a certain like there's another dimension of of um, of uh, being being with others in this kind of um, in this kind of new reason that we might um, we might reach by um, challenging the universal claim of reason. Anyway, it's interesting. I mean, going. I can't help but think about open, open and poly relationships and sort of monogamous heteronormative relationships. <laughs> so, where it's like, right. well, these are also difficult um, because, like, obviously, relational reason we already know from this sort of untrue facts kind of um, contemporary time we're living mm. in that it's uh, also pretty hard to kind mm. of exist in this always relative to each other reason. Um, not, not, not that it's, yeah. not that it's not worth engaging with, but it's also very, um, challenging in many ways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. so the implications of these shifts are many. They involve challenging even notions of location. There are Southern elements in the geographical North, as we see in Eastern Europe, and also the many migrant and refugee groups across the world. And there are northern ones in the south, as we see with the disasters and coups and anti-democracy directions of privatization elites co-opting countries such as Brazil and India. There's also the historical inheritance from colonialism, enslavement, and racism. Right, so we can just quickly there say that this is what we were talking about earlier, where the south and the north are not, like, when, we, when they're capitalized, don't necessarily mean that those those points on a compass but that they that that we're actually talking about the those who are um who are visible who have power and those who are less visible and have less power and how they they these these formations exist in the north and in the yep. south and so and so on yeah you want to keep yeah. reading another shift is the notion of modern the portrait I just gave reveals that it, to be modern, present, one must transform or shifts one's understanding of belonging. One must belong to the future, which offers meaning to one's present and one's past. This means, uh, sorry, my Kindle just went out. This means then if Europe is not the future, but instead only a part of it, then the modern that has dominated the world for the past few hundred years is simply the Euromodern. Understanding this is already a shift in the geography of reason. Indeed, it enables us to look at past moderns. If we were to use a time machine and go to the Mediterranean of antiquity and pick up some maps, we would have to turn some of them upside down to recognize the countries. Those maps reveal that people used to look up to the Southern hemisphere. Africa was above what we now call Europe. Our world, then, is a transformation of one form of what was once modern for another. And we would be deluding ourselves if we were to think of the Euromodern as the last word on this process. So I'll just continue. So finally, if we think of my point about reason yeah. as an incomplete but ongoing commitment, we could see why I argued for shifting instead of simply a shift in the geography of reason. This shifting is a living, ongoing commitment to building livable worlds of living thought. Yes. Yes. Um, that that reminds me of this. Um, I don't remember now the theorist. So it's sort of around margin and center. So that like the the there's always a margin to the center, but the margin is always shifting where that margin lies, and sort of who finds one in or out of that that margin. Right. Right. Um, 
And that there are and, centers. Yeah. Um, oh, it's actually bell hooks. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, center margin theory, bell hooks. Yep. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that... Um, yeah. yeah, just to say that um, I, I think he's just underlining the fact that it's it's shifting, it's ongoing, um, that there have been other what he called um, mod moderns, other moments that were thought of as m modern. I think that's the term he uses. Yeah, past yeah. moderns. So he said that there was a there was a modern there was a there was a modern in the in the, in the Mediterranean of antiquity. Which was not the same modern that we have now, and and they had a, their own kind of idea about the the world. Um, so in one in one in some ways it's very simple. It's just saying like don't say modern, because then you you universalize something which is not universal. So say you're a modern. So it's like kind of like re really situate what you're where you're talking about, and that way you're already in your everyday language, kind of challenging the hegemony of the year modern parading mm. as universal. Mm. And I like his talking about shifting rather than shift. So he's not like, oh, we, they, you know, like, oh, it, the Euro moderns, they got it right. wrong. It's actually this. He's saying, no, like, we need to recognize it's all, always already shifting anyway. It's just very, not very often identified in that, in that way. And we need to, continue to, to to do that to to participate in this shifting um shifting fields of moder of modernities like we need to and um and um do it self-consciously right. with self-awareness right um yeah um yeah cool um yeah, so living the, the shifting is a living ongoing commitment to building livable worlds of living thought so it's that means then that when we start to label things as universal and then we, we kind of make them dead. Yeah. Um, I'm just noting this idea of the livable thought. The livable, that something is mm -hmm. livable. Livable worlds. Um, mm -hmm. I'm just kind of going to leave that to think about um, yeah i wonder what he's talking um, about somehow or ordered um maybe because the world like maybe because the world is actually for many people not livable not livable like the world that's resulted from from modernity for some people is actually not really livable like or only livable in 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 a, in a in the in a very sort of basic form of survival, survivable, you know, um, and even then, not even surviving is possible. Right. So, um, he could be, he could have that in mind. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm gonna bracket it. Yeah, it may have just been a. I mean, this is an interview, so like he hasn't had the chance to. Yeah. in every word as well so it may not be may not be even clear now error in this rest of this piece mm -hmm. but let's keep going um medina asks what problems issues debates do you think are the most burning and crucial for contempor contemporaneity and generally what is contemporaneity for you how would you formulate its gist Many of our European, American, and Russian colleagues of broadly leftist views are worried today about the rise of the ultra-right, conservative, and populist forces all over the world. But then, is this really the gist of contempor contemporaneity? How does a shift in the geography of reason um, correlate with this global rightist backlash? Um, my question is, what, what is this contemporaneity? Is that just another way of saying now? nowness like what's happening now, i think so saying modern yeah i mean I, well i yeah. think modern is different a bit um i think contemporaneity yeah. is definitely now whereas modern has a different kind of implication at least when it as it was first used modernity mm. um in relation to like industrialism and 
enlightenment, I guess. Um, or when we think of modern art, what, like what was, which is its own, which is now, you know, in its own time and place. Yeah. Um, but let's see what he says. At the heart of contemporaneity is modern in the sense of a future worth fighting for. One of the signs of bankrupt positions is the need for them to hide under the guise of the new. In recent times, some intellectual movements promised emancipation, revolution, or at least a possibility of decency, but were then revealed to be compatible with rendering their proponents defenseless under the growing onslaught of exploitation and disenfranchisement. Although having intellectual merit in its time, post-structuralism has now covered itself in the blanket of critical theory, and there is oddly a version of it even in some forms of avowed decolonial theory. This affected many kinds of left, of left thought, where even the varieties of Marxism are full of reservations and worse, as the growth of globalism premised on privatization wrecked havoc, many on the left abdicated the task of building globalism that places life and people first. Romanticized localisms were coughed up as though human beings could return to a time in which we were unaware or of or without contact with each other. The right was aware of this, and they knew that their nakedness offered a world that was, as the English philosopher Thomas Hobbes put it, nasty, brutish, and short. So they too covered themselves, although instead of a blanket, they used a white sheet. So fascism, with all its racist, xenophobic, and reductive class elements, we should remember the 21st century fascist claims they were fighting for the common white man because alt-right, and now even ultra-right, Yes, they are different. After all, the old fascists, fascists and right claim to be offering imperial glory to last a thousand years. Today's fascists assert themselves in a world of political nihilism. That's what actually makes them scarier. Despite their bombacity, they don't actually believe in a future in the long-term sense. Theirs is an immediate future, which collapses into expecting everything for themselves in their lifetime. With that mentality, there's no room for the genuinely political. In fact, political life, with its demands of long-term commitment, becomes the enemy, which is why democracy is imperiled. To work with people reaches beyond the self to those who are ultimately anonymous. It's a lot there. It's hard to, yeah. it's hard to unpack. Um, so... <laughs> um, So he seems to be free, so he's dealing with a lot of different things. Uh, it makes me wonder if, if um, in the fact, an interview is the best source material for a reading group um, because it's not organized as well, perhaps, as the text might be. But because it's, I think what he starts off by saying is that, like, um, so... He says, okay, the first thing, like, what, what's happening right now is that, like, bankrupt positions um, hide mm. under the guise of, an, of the new. So he's actually, and he says, he's actually not, doesn't really, I don't think he's a huge mm -hmm. fan of post-structuralism as a kind of intellectual, as in, not in terms of individual thinkers, because he does, in, in his work, like, actually admire like, Foucault and others, but... Um, I think that as a kind of a movement, he thinks it's kind of like quite, it's kind of really run its course and it's actually made, as he says, like it's compatible with, um, with the, um, um, with like the onslaught. So with, with, the, with the kind of like the rise of the right and its exploitation and disenfranchisement, that actually these intellectual movements, which, which purported to challenge that actually were not able to do that. And then the post-structuralism is now calling is now calling itself critical theory. It's given itself a new name, and even it's even there in like decolonial theory. So like, yeah. So you have to understand. Like, to, to, maybe it's not worth spending too much time with this, but there's certain kinds of political philosophies that have not really worked out, and then they keep rebranding mm. re themselves. Um, even calling itself decolonial theory. Yes. So. Um, and um, so, and so, I think he's sort of suggesting also that, that well, certain kinds of reservations. So I think he's saying these intellectual movements have a lack of kind of confidence somehow, 
um, and then they actually, um, um, and on the other hand, then like the forces of capitalism or globalism, premise on privatization, are really powerful. Are doing all kinds of really destructive things, and the left doesn't really have a response to that. So, like the, the global capitalism is tra- transforming the world, whereas the left is retreating into a kind of what he calls romanticized localisms. Yeah. Um, so I think he's kind of against putting too much in identity. Um, and he suggests that, um, the right is very good at doing this, um, in advoc- and that the right and fascists are advocating for the, the white man. Um, but, um, but the left has also done this as well. Yeah. Um, But also that it's yep. very short term, um, so that they're basically not, they, they don't see future, really. They're seeing everything about, you right. know, they have this kind of, what it call, he calls ni- political nihilism. Um, yeah. So there's the expectation of everything happening within one's, one's sort of lifetime, or that that's all really worth living for. Right. In a sense, or fighting for. Yeah. Right. And so he's actually saying that politics that he, that he would like to be part of is one which mm-hmm. actually reaches into the future, into an unknowable, into a, a future mm-hmm. which is unknowable from the present, and into people who actually we don't even know yet, who are ultimately mm-hmm. anonymous. So it's quite different from localism. It's like trying to reach out to other people who we don't even necessarily know and who may not even be born yet. Mm-hmm. And that's who we don't have mm-hmm. politics with or for. Um, yeah, which right now is quite a radical position. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just taking a note here. Yeah. Do you want to continue on reading here? Yep. Um, so, um, one second. A shift in the geography of reason requires thinking anew and creatively, how we understand concepts such as right and left. There are left-wing positions that can slide into the right when we understand their goals. After all, conservatism is a turn towards a past, a cherry-picked past, of supposed security, law, and order, perfection. This often requires eliminating sources of dissent, such as difference, creativity, and freedom, of which Hobbes was aware. Um, And if pushed to its extreme of fascism. We should understand that our world is not like those of the past. Too many people respond to these crises through trying to figure out which past century to which they belong, the 20th, 19th, or 18th. Our world is undergoing its own seismic shifts with 7 billion people and technologies that transfer distances in a nanosecond. We live in a smaller world and thus a smaller planet. We are compressing reality and thus imploding life. Thus, instead of one burning question, there are many ranging from how to address a planet incapable of sustaining the kind of life to which past ages have committed to us. And those who wish to return are condemning us to, as the East Indian philosopher Sri Aurobindo put it, opening up our minds to our potential to address our challenges. Um, okay, this is... Okay. Um, the late political theorist Benjamin Barber put it this way, nature doesn't negotiate. We must understand that the challenges we face today are p- human-produced. They are manifestations of power by which human beings could affect life beyond ourselves. That means they require human action for the transformation, and the human world produced power is called politics. The right's effort to eliminate political life imperils us all, but we cannot address such a challenge through leaving the understanding of power as has occurred with the global in their hands. They assert power as, as exclusively coercive. It would be a mistake for the rest of us to adopt such a view. Coercive power disempowers. To fight against disempowerment requires empowerment. Shifting the geography of reason requires understanding power should not be reduced to a single element but instead should be explored in its creative potential. 
If we think of power as the ability to make things happen and securing access to the conditions of doing so, there is much proverbially to be done. If we think of the work to be done simply as that of elimination, action to the right, however, our course could lead to a form of anarchy in which would become small privatized sites of protection. In short, a left that becomes the right. We need a responsible form of practice attuned to the many dimensions of what we are and our relationship to other forms of life. We need to unleash our capacity to create, to build meaning, while being sober to the realities of the terrestrial creatures we are. This requires not only a shift of geography in the geography of reason, but also an understanding of what it means to be specks of dust on a speck of dust in a cloud of dust in a larger constellation of dust in a vast universe through which our future depends on our understanding that our little speck of dust is our world reaching out for others and also dependent in the end on each other. Phew. Mm. What do you make of that? Well, I kind of, there were some parts there that I kind of had to suspend again to sort of get to what I think he's ultimately saying. Mm-hmm. So like a shift in the geography of reason. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense to me. And then also sort of a, 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 a grand humbling of kind of who we are as individuals yeah. so that we can yeah. think of ourselves uh, in, in codependence, um, interdependence um, for the sake of our yeah. future. Um Um, just going back to the beginning to see if there's something to kind of bring out from from what he said prior to the sort of concluding including part. Um, what I think is important is this line: the right effort to eliminate political life imperils us all, but we cannot address such a challenge through leaving the understanding of power. As, as the curb is global in their hands. So he's saying that the right has kind of taken over, co-opted words like global and power. So, like, whereas he thinks we should take over both. Like, he thinks politics should be global. That our planet is getting compacted, as he said. So, and, and, and we have all kinds of challenges, which kind of, and we're becoming a speck of dust. Our planet's a speck of dust. We have all these challenges which we cannot possibly solve on our own, in our own local space. So we need to be, be global, but also we need to actually take power because power is not only the coercive power that the, that the right would use, which disempowers, but there's actually another form of power which is called empowerment, a positive form of power, and it's our creative potential. And so I think he believes that the left has become allergic to talking about power. Like... You don't hear people talking about, as they did generations ago, about seizing mm. the means of production mm. and things like that, you know, seizing, taking power because we're kind of like, oh, no, that didn't work. That's failed. Now we kind of like, we do a different kind of politics. But it's like, no, we really need to really embrace um, power and, um, um, and also um, um, We have, to, we have to think of power as the ability to make things happen and securing access to the conditions of doing so. So, like, that means really taking power in the sense of, like, maybe seizing the means of production, maybe, like, taking factories that make microchips away from, from uh, Foxconn, for instance, or um, transforming um, the, the representative democracies into, you know, much democracies that really do actually allow people, every person to participate in a meaningful way on a daily basis or something. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm partly, you know, inspired by what you're saying. On the other hand, I'm confused by the way in which I feel like this is still just replicating this idea of like what is good power and what is not good power and the right and the left, you know, in the same breath mm-hmm. that he says we need to rethink how we think of the right and the left and yet he's also saying um that we you know that the right has uh has tried to eliminate political life it imperils us all um so I, it's like it, it 
yeah, we can't we can't leave global in their hands. So I, I don't know. I get a bit there. I get a bit stuck. Um, I also think that the left has used empowerment quite a bit. Um, right. I think what he's saying, though, is that, like, the right tries to kind of remove politics, like, tries to erase politics by saying that, you know, that this is the, we have to go back to the time when things were right. You know, like, and so, like, it's a, it, and that's, that's a kind of universal. And um, where he's much more interested in kind of processes, like, before he was talking about reason being a kind of becoming an active and open process. Or going into the future, like going, like dealing with dealing, like doing politics for the future for outcomes we can't even yet necessarily imagine. So we don't even know exactly what the world want to create is is looking like, but we're taking steps towards it. And um, so he thinks that left can be right if it's like a if it's a communist utopia that like that's 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 really kind of like um, fixed and limited and and universalized universalizing. Then it's kind of right wing, basically. It isn't that, that much yeah, different. Yeah, I see. To the mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. But then, I mean, in essence, though, then he is sort of still advocating, though, for a difference. I mean, asserting difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, which I think ultimately could be problematic. Again, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it. That's why I feel a bit like befuddled by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear you. I hear you. Um, let's keep going a bit longer. We're almost at seven thirty, which is yeah, a lot of time. Yeah, I'm about halfway through. So maybe we we um we can um just finish with the paragraph, talk about it, and then sure. kind of close it. In my writings, I argue that this requires a shift in our understanding of responsibility. Much of our planet is locked in the language of legal and moral responsibility, and then metaphysical ones appealing to deities. We need to understand the uniqueness of political responsibility, which is my good friend, the late Iris Madison, Marion Young, Iris Marion Young, always stressed is about the future. And since I've argued that political life always addresses those who are anonymous, the not yet born and many amongst those who have become ancestors, we should understand what it means to fight for what is not about us individually, but instead about what depends on us while transcending us. We often forget each of us is a descendant of those who not only stood upright and developed tools and language, but also realized the importance of non-narcissistic love. Mm. So there's a lot in there. Um, yeah, again, about like it's, it's a kind of non-narcissistic love. It means like not just loving the same. Right, right. And the and the short term, obviously, the local, the um, yeah. A life that one is in. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah. I mean, the yeah. only thing I would add to this, for me personally, I I, I sometimes don't get so inspired yeah. by the future. Um, but I do get inspired by the idea of the present that is also anonymous. And those, those you know, who, right. who we are living with and among who are not basically alive right. to us or visible to us. And yeah, I think it looks good. And yeah, and, and I, I feel somehow personally more inspired about about how how we can kind of motivate in the in the present. I mean, in the present, in our lifetimes, to um, yeah, to be politically active on 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 behalf or because we are interrelated with people that we don't know right now. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's about taking actions that will allow us to approach that future. Um, we don't know, like, it, it, it's about, like, not, it's, I think that the thing, the thing with the future is it's the, it's the not yet here so it's a, it's 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 an unstable space whereas like so we're, like it's not like we know what the future is going to look like we don't we don't know 
what it's going to look like, but we're fighting for it anyway. And we're, we're taking action that lead us into a kind of, into a deeper kind of relationship and responsibility to those people who we don't know because they're just physically different from us or because they're not yet born. And we're taking actions to, to create politics with them, even though it's very hard to do so. And we don't know, we don't even know what the, um, what the actions, consequence of actions will be. So it's saying we often forget that each of us is a descendant of those who not only stood upright and developed tools and language, but also realize the importance of non-narcissistic love. So maybe non-human. Yeah. Yeah. But people like people stood upright. So like, it's like even like that, they didn't know what co- the consequences that would have for, our f- for the future. But seeing from our perspective, like those actions that they took to survive um, have you know, bequeathed to us a world that we now live in and bodies that we now live in. So it's about thinking of politics a little bit like that, like it's kind of like a, as like a very, also it's a very long-term thing and something which, is, which we can't quite, which we'll never see the outcome of exactly as a way of stopping it from getting kind of like locked up in universalism, utopias and things like that. Right. That we don't know the long-term effects of our decisions on some level. I think we need to, yeah, I think that I need to read this Iris Marion Young piece. We need to understand the uniqueness of political responsibility, which is mm-hmm. always about the future. I, like, I think that I don't really understand that statement well enough to talk about it. Well, it's funny because I feel like on the one hand, it requires us to to feel very responsible for every decision we're making. And on the other hand, to actually really not know right. what what are the effects. Yeah. That's the existentialist in Lewis Gordon. Right. Yeah, he talks a lot about in the rest of the book about leaps of faith and things like right. that. Um, yeah. Which I find very interesting. I yeah. Which I think leaves um, room. Oh, let's, sorry. Let's close it there. Mm. Oh, I mean, just uh, I think it leaves room for the nihilist, though. Too is kind of like, well, you know, what does it matter? How is it going to matter? Um, which is interesting. Yeah, although I, he speaks very much mm-hmm. against nihilism, um, um, which right. is that nothing matters. Um, which is saying that, like, I think he's saying, like, no, things do matter, but we can't, we can't know them from our perspective. We can't know the outcomes of actions. We can't, we can't have complete knowledge yeah. of even the present. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. That's really, that's really and, challenging. Like, I think yeah. things do matter, and we can't know them. Yeah, we can't know, we can't predict them. Right. 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 Um. Yeah. What's interesting? Anyway, I would Up like there. to mm-hmm. close it there. Yeah, and just reflect a little bit. Um, how was that for you? So far, um, it's been great. It's been great to do a close reading of a text. Um, I think that yeah, decolonialism, decentering, um, knowledges and um, places of power, locations of power, uh is is um is how we sort of is how we sort of get it the idea of extractivism and uh helps to understand what are the issues contained in extractivism right right i think so too i agree um, I want to observe. We got to about f- um four and a half pages. Yep. So it might be just worth thinking about in terms of choosing texts. Uh, um, totally. How long they are, or whether we want to read all of them. So mm-hmm. five and a half pages, I think. No, four and a half. So yeah, think about that. If we want to, we know that we probably can't get to more than. Five pages in a mm-hmm. session. Um, 
Yeah. I also think I, I probably wouldn't actually use this text um, in a lot in a group because uh, it's, it's too wide ranging. And um, uh, yeah, I don't know but if you feel the same way. I feel like I would, it's, it would be nice if it was more kind of focused. Uh, yeah, I. Or is it good? Yeah, I, I think also or... that. I think also that, because because mm-hmm. he's trying to say a lot in a short bit of time. You know, he's getting at mm-hmm. he's getting at the kind of the big ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. So yeah, I don't true. know. I guess that's not helpful, but I see advantages in in both. Whereas, like, we might hone in on a text yeah. and get four pages in and, and sort of not be able to see necessarily the larger implications because you kind of might right. need to bite off more like 20 or something pages. All right, so let's leave it there and then we can uh, come back to this text next time. Sure. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. This has been the Art and Extractivism podcast. Our reading group takes place bi-weekly. To take part please visit our website at www.hyenas.com. That's www.hyenaz.com.